15 men and one woman were the ultimate victims in a series of collective rule-breaking. Safety regulations exist for a reason, and today I want to dive into a story that shows the importance of following those very rules. For skydivers involved, their decision to ignore a crucial rule would lead to the deadliest skydiving disaster of that time. Because you know what they say. Safety regulations are written in blood. I'm Tatiana, and this is Occurrence. It's August 27, 1967, and a group of around 30 skydivers have gathered at Ordner Airport in Wakeman, Ohio. They were all excited to jump together from a privately owned, modified warplane. It was a cloudy and chilly morning, and everyone was wearing extra layers to keep warm. The plan was for all the skydivers to jump together and take advantage of this unique jump. But there was one thing to note. This event was not sponsored by any skydiving organizations. It was a group of enthusiasts who came together to enjoy their passion for skydiving. The day started with the delay due to the cloudy conditions. They checked the conditions in the morning, but didn't do a second check before takeoff. As they loaded onto the plane and prepared for takeoff, they realized that there were too many people and the plane was overloaded. They had to come up with the solution to decide who would get to make history on this jump. It was decided that the most experienced divers would be chosen. This meant that the less experienced divers had to forfeit this opportunity. It was a tough decision, but one that they believed would prioritize safety, and unknowing at the time was a decision that spared their lives. Out of the group, the 20 most experienced skydivers were selected to jump. Among them were 17 members of the United States Parachute Association, who had already completed at least 75 jumps and some with over 200 jumps under their belt. Before the jump, as with any risky activity, everyone signed liability waivers. These waivers acknowledge the risk involved and state that the business or people running it will not be held responsible for any mishaps. It's a standard practice to ensure everyone understands the potential dangers. The plan was for 18 divers to jump from 20,000 feet, while the remaining two would jump from 30,000 feet when the plane circled back. The parachutes would deploy at 3,000 feet, ensuring everyone had enough time to land safely. Now here's where things took a turn. The jump didn't involve just one plane, but two. The main plane was the North American B-25 Mitchell bomber. That's the plane the jumps would happen from. This was flown by Robert Carnes and Richard Wolf. It was accompanied by a Cessna 180 Skywagon flying around 12,000 feet to capture photographs of the jump. As the planes took off around 3 p.m., the cloud cover prevented everyone from having a clear view of their surroundings. In situations like this, pilots often rely on air traffic control for additional guidance and information on their positioning. Both the bomber and the Cessna contacted air traffic control to get location updates. The bomber pilot was the first to make the call, requesting information on his location. The controller placed him six miles away from Ortner Airfield. The Cessna pilot, flying at a lower elevation, didn't have a visual of the bomber and called air traffic control to confirm its positioning in relation to his own. However, the controller could only see one plane on the radar, so he told the Cessna he was probably about six miles behind the bomber. What the controller didn't know was that he had just mistaken the Cessna's position on the radar for the bomber's position. This led to the bomber pilot believing that he was now three miles away from the drop zone, 
when, in reality, he was right on top of Lake Erie, 12 to 13 miles past the drop zone. It was after 4 p.m., and the Cessna was still trying to locate the bomber, as it was around the time the first 18 divers were supposed to be in the air. Unfortunately, he didn't find them. Meanwhile, with the cloud cover preventing them from seeing what was below, the pilot gave the jump master the signal for the first 18 skydivers to jump at the pre-planned height of 20,000 feet. One by one, they jumped from the plane's four exits. They were doing freestyle maneuvers, so they were out one after the other, practically simultaneously. When they finally broke through almost 6,000 feet of clouds, chaos ensued. They were met with a horrifying sight below them. They had less than four minutes to prepare for impact as they realized they were falling over Lake Erie and would land in water. In a desperate attempt to reduce their weight and increase their chances of survival, some of the skydivers immediately began shedding clothing. Anything that would weigh them down had to go. They knew that landing in water with all of that gear was dangerous. Meanwhile, completely unaware of the disaster unfolding beneath them, the bomber continued on his path. The request to ascend to 30,000 feet for the remaining two divers to jump was initially denied by the control center, so the pilot had to adjust his flight plan, and 20 minutes later, the remaining skydivers were finally able to make their jump over the correct area of the airfield. The bomber descended and safely landed, and once he and the Cessna pilot were made aware of the situation, they got back in the air to try and find the divers still in the water. Onlookers witnessed parachutes opening at different intervals, creating the illusion of a coordinated effort. Among those watching was an off-duty Coast Guard lieutenant who immediately sprang into action. He notified the Coast Guard station and organized rescue efforts with civilian boaters. Despite the dangerous lake conditions, the rescue operation began within minutes. Unfortunately, the four-foot waves, cold weather, and strong winds hampered rescue efforts. And out of the 18 skydivers from the first jump, only two were rescued. Two men on a pleasure boat were able to pull them from the water just in time. They also pulled another diver from the water, but tragically, they weren't able to resuscitate him. When the Coast Guard arrived, they were pessimistic about finding any more survivors and eventually shifted their focus to recovery. The remains of the final skydivers were recovered on September 4th. The investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, began immediately. It revealed several factors that contributed to the accident by conducting three studies. The first determined that the divers could not have drifted more than two miles, which effectively placed the bomber three to four miles offshore and 11 miles from Ortner. The second study reconstructed the flight path and reached practically the same conclusion for the plane's location. The third study considered the locations of both planes in relation to the locations they were given by air traffic control. It concluded that the controller mistook the Cessna for the bomber. In the end, the bomber pilot was faulted for allowing a jump when he couldn't see the ground and for not being rated to fly a B-25. The air traffic controller was blamed for providing incorrect positioning information, which led to the confusion and misjudgment of the bomber's location. There were steps the controller was supposed to take to verify where the planes are and how to properly locate ones that don't appear on the radar they neglected to follow those steps. Shockingly, the NTSB revealed that the bomber was not certified or equipped to carry passengers. There was no seating beyond the cockpit and it lacked insulation and heating. 
It had technical limitations that made it challenging for the pilot to navigate and communicate with air traffic control simultaneously. The plane had navigation equipment, but the pilot could not use it while listening to the control center, which he neglected to tell the air traffic controller. Now, on a smaller scale and not as big of a contributor to the disaster, is that the oxygen equipment available to the pilot required mask removal for communications. The degree of hypoxia experienced by the pilot is unknown but believed to be a non-factor in the accident overall. He didn't sound like he was experiencing hypoxia on the plane recordings, and when he asked the co-pilot how he seemed, he just told him his face was flushed. They turned up his oxygen and he appeared to balance back out. The NTSB determined hypoxia wasn't even a concern until after the first drop, but before the second one. The investigation concluded that the accident was primarily caused by the failure to follow safety rules, lack of proper communication, and the disregard for the weather and visibility conditions. It also stated that the skydivers were not without fault for jumping under those conditions, considering their experience. The rule they decided to disregard was the rule that skydivers are prohibited from jumping if they don't have a clear view of the target. Specifically, skydivers are banned from jumping certain distances around clouds, above, below, and horizontally from them. It's simple. If you can't see where you'll land, then it's not safe to jump. Pilots aren't even supposed to stop the jump if they can't get enough clearance. And that's a rule with the United States Parachute Association and the Federal Aviation Administration. In the aftermath of the accident, some of the survivors and the estates of the deceased divers took legal action against the United States for the air traffic controller's error. In a civil suit, the court held the United States liable due to the controller's negligence. And in a following appeals case, the skydivers were found not to be at fault because the rule that they broke was not made for the safety of skydivers, but for those they might hit instead. So even though the NTSB considered them to be at fault, civilly, they weren't, because there was no added negligence on their part. I do want to note something, though. In the report, the survivors told investigators that due to the construction of the plane, they couldn't see below them until they were out of the plane. They literally couldn't see the clouds or surface directly below the aircraft during the climb out and initial jump. They saw glimpses straight out through cloud breaks, but could not clearly see if it was land or water. And remember, they were all jumping back to back. Everyone was out in 20 seconds max. They were fully trusting the pilot to be in the correct location with a clear view of the ground. I suppose it emphasizes the significance of ensuring your own safety. This tragic accident serves as a reminder that safety regulations exist for a reason. They are designed to protect everyone involved and to prevent such devastating incidents. It's a lesson that should be heeded by all who engage in high-risk activities. Now, you might be wondering what happened afterwards. Well, in the two years following the accident, skydivers conducted memorial jumps as a way to remember those who lost their lives. They would throw a wreath out of a plane and then intentionally jump into Lake Erie, wearing light clothing and flotation devices to be safe. And more recently, in 2020, one survivor who had gotten off the plane before it took off expressed his intention to celebrate his 90th birthday by doing the same jump in 2024, which I think is a testament to the resilience and love for skydiving that exists with people who participate in it. The bomber pilot had his license suspended indefinitely, but allegedly it only lasted a year and he would still fly during the suspension as long as there was a co-pilot in the plane with him. 
the air traffic controller stuck to his story that the bomber was inland until the very end, it's not clear if they had any other consequences due to their part in what happened. And as for the plane, well, its ending solidified my opinion that no one should have ever been flying it at all. In August of 1970, just a few weeks before the third anniversary of the Lake Erie disaster, the bomber took off from Turner Falls and headed about a dozen miles east to Orange Municipal Airport. The pilot was allegedly practicing additional takeoffs and landings on the somewhat longer runway there. The plane had been sold and the pilot had to take it to its buyer. The NTSB report described the purpose of the flight as practice. Apparently, the FAA office nearby said the practice landings were necessary because the pilot had not flown the aircraft for 90 days and, according to regulations, had to reactivate his status before taking passengers on the plane. So, according to the report, the plane was on its second go-around, with gear and flaps down. The pilot added power, and the plane stalled. It rolled to the left and hit the ground inverted. The NTSB faulted the accident as the pilot attempting to fly a plane beyond his experience level and his failure to maintain flying speed. This same pilot, logged over 500 hours flying in the Air Force before he was discharged and logged around 30 hours flying in smaller planes after. It was noted that he hadn't flown that type of aircraft for about 11 years, though. Eyewitnesses on the ground, including the ground crew at the crash site, reported seeing the plane upside down overhead before it hit the ground. It was pretty much nose first, just past where they were standing. The pilot, Roger Lopez was the only person in the plane, and he died in the crash. Now, it's clear that accountability lies with multiple parties involved, but it's important to remember that accidents like these should serve as a lesson for better safety practices in the future. So what do you think about one of the deadliest skydiving accidents in history? Who do you believe bears the most responsibility? Leave a comment with your thoughts, and stay safe. This podcast is available wherever you prefer to stream podcasts and a video version you can watch on YouTube. All sources and additional information are in the description. See you next time.